Well, thanks for joining us again this morning as we continue our, our rather rapid journey through Second Samuel, looking at certain highlights. This morning we come to uh, the start of the second of three sections in Second Samuel, and we'll be looking at uh, parts of chapters 9 and 10, under, as Tony has said, the title, Showing the Love of God. So let's read some verses from chapter 9 and then some verses from chapter 10. Two very different incidents. So 2 Samuel chapter 9. Let's read, first of all, the first three verses. David asked, Is there still, is anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. And we later discover that his name was Mephibosheth. So let's look to the end of this story in verse 11, just the end of verse 11. So Mephibosheth, that's Jonathan's son, ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And over to chapter 10. Let's read the first four verses. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness, notice that phrase, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commander said to Hanan their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. And that gross insult, uh, as the rest of the chapter describes, led to an international war with devastating results, particularly for the Ammonites. Now, in the first eight chapters, which we've covered in the last two weeks, uh, David's rule is established over the whole United Kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem is established as the capital of the kingdom, and the ark, or which is God's throne, uh, had been brought up to Jerusalem. Now, the following chapters then, uh, which we've just started, in these, the challenge is how a successful ruler not builds his kingdom, but how he sustains his government. David's honeymoon period by this stage is over. The novelty of David being king has worn off. So how does David hold on to his position? What are his ruling principles? Does he rule his kingdom by power and through fear? 
Well, how would you expect God's king, appointed and anointed by God, to rule the kingdom? Well, you might say, I would expect God, God's king, to rule by love. That's a nice idea, an interesting idea. But it does raise the question, what does it look like to rule by love? And in our two chapters this morning, um, we see David ruling by the principle of love, or as it was translated in the version I read, by kindness. But it's much more than being kind. And we have two different incidents, and in each case, David takes actions which are motivated by what is called the love or the kindness of God. Both chapters use this special Hebrew word. I'm no expert in Hebrew, but the word is something like chesed. Uh, and it's used particularly to describe the kind of love that God shows. It's sometimes translated loving kindness, which we've just been singing about, loving kindness as a flood, or sometimes just kindness or just love. It has the idea, particularly, of showing loyalty to someone, whatever happens. And you can't get a higher form of love than the love of God. So what better way to rule a country than through love? Does it work? Well, a naive answer would be, of course, it must work. But does it work in practice? So let's look at these two incidents, because we get a surprising answer uh, in them. So first of all, then, in chapter 9, this story of Mephibosheth. I do wish he had been given a shorter name. But by the time we reach chapter 9, David's rule over all Israel is now well established. And at this point, he remembers a promise he made a long time ago to Jonathan, the son of Saul. Jonathan is now dead, but uh, while David was still being hounded by Saul, Jonathan knew that David was going to become the next king and not Jonathan himself. And in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 20, an anxious Jonathan says this to David, but show me unfailing kindness, that word again, like the Lord's kindness, Jonathan says, as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. And it is this covenant or this agreement which David uh, remembered many years later. David had promised to show the kindness of God to Jonathan's remaining family. So David made careful inquiries and discovered that there was still one son of Jonathan still alive, a man called Mephibosheth. So David had Mephibosheth brought to him. Mephibosheth was disabled in that he was lame and couldn't walk and had to be carried everywhere. David brought him into his palace and looked after him like one of his own sons. It's a well-known story in Christian circles, but there are three important things about the way that David showed the love of God to Mephibosheth, because David wasn't showing his own love, his own natural love. It was the love of God. And there are three things which are characteristic of the way God shows 
his love. Firstly, his display of love was not a sudden surge of emotion or sentimentality. It was based on a covenant, an agreement, and a promise which he had entered into with Jonathan many years before. But to David, a covenant promise was unbreakable. You couldn't simply forget about it because the other person was David. David was loyal to Jonathan even after his death. Now, I'm sure that at times Mephibosheth was a great inconvenience to David. We don't even know whether David was really fond of Mephibosheth, but he looked after him like a son. And when David had dignitaries coming to visit him, even from other countries, and they came to eat at his table in his palace, there was Mephibosheth being carried in and eating with them. And at times, Mephibosheth may even have been an embarrassment to David, but he kept his promise. It was unbreakable, and David was loyal to his promise. He was glad to be able to keep his word, because that's the sort of person that David was, but it was the sort, it's the way God shows his love. And David was just copying the way God loves people. When God makes a promise to someone, God delights to keep that promise. When God tells people that he loves them, God is utterly faithful to them. And when God enters into a covenant with people, which he does with every Christian, then he will never, ever break that promise. This morning, when we celebrated the Lord's Supper and took the cup, we were remembering the new covenant which the Lord Jesus made with his followers. We are bound to the Lord Jesus by a covenant which he will never, ever break. At times, we must be an inconvenience to the Lord Jesus, even an embarrassment to the Lord. But one of the most glorious things about God is that he will always be faithful to his promise and he will always be loyal to us. That is the nature of his love. Now, some of you, those of you who are married, or those of you who are thinking about married, getting married, or even hoping to get married, well, it's important to bear in mind the nature of God's love. You should be determined to show that love of God to your husband or to your wife. Not a love that depends on how young-looking your spouse is. Not a love that depends on uh, how popular they are or how wealthy they are. But a love that depends on the promise that you made, on the covenant that you entered into when you got married. If you ever lose that feeling of love, if you ever find your husband or your wife becoming a bit of a restriction, or God forbid, even an embarrassment to you, or if they become disabled in some way, then honor God by showing God's kind of loyal love to your spouse, by remaining faithful and loyal to the covenant you entered into together. Just the way that David did for Mephibosheth. That kind of love is characteristic of the love and kindness of God. 
The second characteristic of the way that David showed the kindness of God is that Jonathan and Jonathan's family was still a potential threat to David's rule. He was still technically an enemy of David. Many of Saul's supporters would have regarded Mephibosheth as the rightful heir to the throne. It was quite normal in those days that when a new dynasty came to power to wipe out all the previous king's descendants in case they became a rallying point for opposition by the previous regime. So the fact that David brought Saul's remaining grandson right into his palace was shocking to some, but it demonstrated something unique about David. He showed love to his enemies. Indeed, later, Joab accuses David of this. He said, you love your enemies more than your friends. Well, that wasn't quite true. But David did have the ability more than most to love his enemies. And that was a sign that his love was like God's love. One of the proofs of the deity of the Lord Jesus is that he instinctively loved those who regarded him as their enemy. And also that he taught with authority. He taught his followers authoritatively to love our enemies. And the third characteristic of how David showed the love and kindness of God was, well, we need to go back earlier to when David captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites in chapter 5. Now, the Jebusites were pretty good warriors. It's, Jerusalem was very secure, but the Jebusites were really a horrible lot of people. We read in particular in that chapter, for some reason, we're told that the Jebusites despised anybody who was lame or blind. They mocked David's soldiers with these words before uh, they attacked Jerusalem. You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And the Jebusites had one specific rule, which we read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, which shows what they thought of the lame and the blind. This is the saying. The blind and lame will not enter the palace. The blind and lame in what had been Jerusalem were never allowed to cross the threshold of the palace. And in light of that, isn't it very revealing that one of David's first actions after he had built his palace in Jerusalem was to install a lame man in his palace and to treat him like one of his own sons. What a counter-cultural statement David made about how to treat the lame and the blind. That was another way in which uh, David demonstrated the love and kindness of God himself. I think this helps to explain something unique about the Lord Jesus. Have you never noticed how the blind people who met the Lord nearly always called him son of David? Now, that wasn't a political phrase. They rem remembered David with great affection because of how David uh, treated the lame and the blind. And they believed that the Lord Jesus was like another David because of the healing he brought to blind and lame people. 
When the Lord Jesus came to Jerusalem for the last time in Matthew 21, he went to the temple, and there we read about something which outraged the chief priests. The lame and the blind, we read, rushed the temple. They stormed it and followed the Lord right into the temple. Normally, the lame were left outside the temple at the gate. They weren't allowed in. But uh, the Lord healed them. And when he healed them, all the people shouted in joy, Hosanna to the son of David. Again, not so much a political statement, but recognizing that in the Lord Jesus, they had someone who was showing the kindness and love of God. The Lord treated and blind and lame people with even greater kindness than David ever could. In the way he brought healing and honor and dignity to the lame and the blind, the Lord showed that characteristic love, loving kindness of God for which David was remembered with hope and with affection by the disabled community in Israel. So when David said to Ziba, the servant, that he wanted to show what he said, what he called the kindness of God, David was making a very um, specific statement, nothing sentimental or emotional about this. David knew that he had to show a kindness and love that was not natural to himself. It wasn't the kindness of David. It was something outside of himself, but something that had inspired David because he had experienced it from God in his own life. And he was determined to show the kindness of God. There's a simple statement which Christians often uh, say to people who aren't Christians, even to people who are very antagonistic to Christianity. We sometimes just say to people, God loves you. Now, it can sound a rather trite and commonplace statement, but we've just seen that there is nothing bland about the fact that God loves everyone. God loves those who don't love him. He loves those who don't believe in him. He loves people who resent Christianity and who hate Christians. He loves people who are ignored in society or rejected or even despised by people they would love to be friends with. God loves good people and he loves bad people. And it's not just a, a mushy feeling. As we have seen, it is a determined, a faithful, consistent attitude of love. He does not take a person's race or gender into account. He loves everyone with a steady, unflinching, respectful love. He does not override a person's choices and treat us as children. He will not force his way into someone's life if they don't want him, but he still loves them, even from outside the door of their heart, even if his love is unrequited. Many people, when they come to understand the love of God, find it transforms their lives and transforms their thinking. When they discover that they are loved by their creator, by the creator of the universe, when they open their heart to the fact that they have in heaven a heavenly father who truly loves them, it can change them completely from the innermost part of their being. 
Now, because Christians have seen this happen so many times, some people rush to the conclusion that everyone would become a Christian if only they could see uh, that God loves them. And that has led some people to believe that everyone will ultimately see the wonderful love of God, even if it's when they stand before God. And they will then inevitably welcome God's love and be saved. A few years ago, there was a, a book that was popular at the time by a writer called Rob Bell, and he called his book Love Wins. He put forward the teaching that God's love will ultimately overcome everyone's doubts and fears, and so no one will end up in hell. Now, this teaching proved very appealing, particularly those uh, among those who have been brought up in a very harsh hell-fire preaching tradition and who with good reason were revolted by the emotional manipulation they had experienced. But Rob Bell went further by saying that ultimately everyone will be saved by seeing the love of God. Was he right? Personally, I think he should have read the next chapter in 2 Samuel, chapter 10. And let me remind you the story that it tells. In chapter 9, David showed the kindness of God to Mephibosheth, and David saw the gratitude that it inspired. And perhaps David felt he was on a roll here uh, because he immediately sees an oppor another opportunity to show kindness. The same word, chesed, is used for the kindness he wanted to show to the new king of the Ammonites. Now, Israel and Ammonite, the Ammonites had been traditional enemies. The, Ammonite, the Ammonites had been brutal to Israel, particularly during the reign of King Saul. But it seems that under David, the cruel old Ammonite king had come to an agreement with David and perhaps even made a covenant or treaty with David. In that sense, they had both shown kindness to each other based on a covenant. But then that old king died and his son Hanun came to the throne. This was the moment that David thought was a good opportunity to show that same kindness or love of God to the bereaved king, and so he sent a delegation. But Hanun's response to, be show, to being shown love and kindness was rather shocking. The new administration of the Ammonites was obviously rather paranoid. They didn't trust David. When they received a delegation from David to express David's condolences, they were suspicious. They thought David's delegates were secretly spies. There was a fundamental antagonism to David which came to the surface only when David reached out to show them love and kindness. If David hadn't done that, their antagonism uh, may never have surfaced. They misinterpreted David's act of kindness as part of a very clever plan to work his way into their lives, and they certainly didn't want that. So the king responded by grossly insulting the delegation who came with a message of love. And uh, the rest of the chapter tells us how David was pushed to respond on behalf of his insulted delegates, and the result was an international war which sucked in other nations, 
and the resulting war destroyed the Ammonite, the Ammonite kingdom and their allies. So did love win? In some ways, it was David's message of love which brought about the destruction of the Ammonites. It revealed a deep-seated antipathy to David so that an expression of love produced a very violent reaction. There are some people who are so opposed to God that they will react strongly against the message of God's love. They will see it as a subtle attempt for God to worm his way into their lives, and they don't want anything to do with that. They are so determined to keep God out of their lives, they are so suspicious of God that they react very strongly against anyone who brings in the message that God loves them. If someone sees what God is like and even accepts that God does love them and they resent that fact and they reject God, what more can God say to them? Can God reach anyone like that? If God were to show them even more love, all it would, be, would, be, all it would do would be to make them even more bitter against God in their reaction and to put up the shutters even more firmly. They would even destroy their own lives rather than accept God. We have known some people who in rejecting God have got into a lifestyle of alcohol and drugs and debauchery which is destroying their lives, sometimes pr uh, prompted by the rebellion against God and by their determination never to open their lives to the message of Jesus and his love for them. Is there any hope for someone like that? Well, there can be. Sometimes God has to allow someone like that to wreck their lives through their own rebellion, to destroy even part of their humanity so that they come to the point where there's very little of their humanity and personality left. And then God steps in again to say that he still loves them. Sometimes pride and rebellion has to burn itself out in a person's life. And if such a person finally admits their rebellion and realizes that they do need a loving God to save them, then some eventually come to God like that and they receive new life. God accepts even the dregs of such a person's life, pours into them his Holy Spirit, gives them a new life and performs the miracle of conversion and salvation. But what about someone whose pride and rebellion against God is not broken, even when they, they destroy their own lives in their rebellion? If they reject and continue to reject every overture from God, then there's nothing more that God can do or say for people like that. God will not force them to accept his love against their will. You cannot force someone to love you back, unfortunately. That wouldn't be love. It wouldn't be a victory of love. It would be a perfect victory of power and brute force. And God is not in the business 
of using his superior power to get what he wants. So, in our passage this morning, we've seen something of the nature of the unique love of God. It's a unique kind of love whereby God loves his enemies. He loves damaged people of this world, and he is not ashamed to lovingly accept someone who surrenders only after years of rebellion. Many of us here have accepted and experienced the love of God, often without rebellion. We have seen the extent of God's love for everyone, particularly in the historical fact of the death of Jesus, the Son of God, for the sins of the whole world. But over the years, many of us have also experienced that very personal and individual loving touch of God in our lives. And we realize that even his discipline in our lives is a mark of his love for us personally. I'll just end by pointing out that the Lord, I think, the Lord Jesus would make two calls to us this morning. The first is to Christians. Christ gave a new commandment to his followers. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another the way I have loved you. And the way Christ loved his disciples was to show the love of God, the kindness of God. He does not merely want us to be grateful for his love to us. He wants us to pass it on to others, to our Christian brothers and sisters, to every Christian brother and sister, not just those that we like and those who like us. The Lord Jesus commands us to show that same constant chesed love to all other Christians. And the second call of Jesus is to those who are not yet Christians. The Lord understands that there can be something stubborn in people's hearts that resists love and sees love, sometimes even the love of parents. They see it as something almost controlling, and they want to be free. But when we read about the love of God, it's not to control us. It's to change us, to make us fulfilled. And if you're not a Christian yet, and you have had some inkling of God's love for you, then don't be suspicious of God's intention for your life. Don't rebel like that Ammonite king but decide to accept God's love in good faith because God can be trusted. Let's just take a moment to pray and then I'll hand back to Tony. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the immensity and the difference of your love. We sometimes sung as children, Jesus loves me, this I know. And even a child can trust God, and because of their unsuspicious nature, they can actually have a deeper understanding and acceptance of the love of God than cynical adults. Father, we pray for those of us who are believers that we would take to heart the Lord's command that we would show this love to our Christian brothers and sisters. And if anyone here is not yet a believer, we pray that their heart would be open in trust to the love which, of God which the Lord Jesus has shown.
So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.